Rami Zaid Show, interviewing interesting people so people can learn interesting things. Here is your host, Rami Zaid. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Rami Zaid Show, where I interview interesting people so people can learn interesting things. My guest today is Pat Romano. Pat and I have been friends for well over a decade, and he is quite the Renaissance man. Him and I start our conversation out as him as a child, working in his dad's shoe repair shop, to Pat's value of his education at Harvard, him as a father, a triathlete, a restaurant owner, a musician. Pat can play almost any instrument without sheet music. And oh, by the way, he's the chief executive officer for ChargePoint, who in September of 2020, announced that they would be going public through a reverse merger. In the middle of our conversation, our Wi-Fi went out. My editors are doing a fantastic job to kind of smooth that over, but you'll probably hear a little bit of a blip in the middle. Regardless, there is a lot of valuable nuggets from Pat here in this conversation, and frankly, a lot of inspiration. I really hope you all enjoy the show. Pat Romano, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rami. Good to be here. I do some research before these shows, and you are definitely quite the Renaissance man, I will say. But I want to start with something I thought was pretty special, and that is your father, who I believe was a first-generation immigrant from Italy, correct? Yeah, he was. You worked in his shoe repair shop. I did. I'm a free trained cobbler. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. I don't know how you figure that one out. You're a better man than most people <laughs> do researching about that. So my dad moved to the U.S. when he was 19 years old from Italy. Post-World War II, Italy was a challenging place. But he was born in 1937 and uh, moved here when he was 19. Like most immigrants, worked a variety of jobs. He, I think one of his early ones was he worked at an asphalt tile factory, the night shift. Wow. Not a great experience, but it's what most immigrants do to get on their feet. And America was, and still is, the land of opportunity. It's a little harder these days, I think, because of just how things have evolved here. But he went to school for a GED, so he could get a high school equivalency diploma here. Took a English as a second language course, so he could learn the language appropriately. And then he was living with his cousin, and his cousin owned a shoe repair shop. And this was not a first or second cousin, more distant cousin, sure. yeah. a little older than him and was getting out of the business. And my dad trained as an apprentice under him while he was still working other jobs and then decided to buy the business from his cousin in the Princeton Shopping Center in Princeton, New Jersey. And as I was growing up, it was the family business and he expanded it into re shoe retail and stuff like that. So I'm kind of a male Amel DeMarcos. I have <laughs> as a result, but he had, you know, very immigrant value system. And he's like, your kids, you know, have to learn how to work and, and they have to learn how to pull their weight for the family, which I just, I, I can't thank him enough for that. It was the best work ethic training that I had ever been through. I don't think he knew consciously that he was doing that. It was just part of his value system. And so from the time I could literally walk, he would give me tasks. And by the time I was a teenager, I was fully trained. Wow. So tell us a little bit about, I mean, what were you actually doing? If you gave me the equipment 
and a pair of worn out shoes. I could resole them, reheal them. I could, I could get a shine as, you know, you could probably use it as a mirror. <laughs> I know exactly what to do. And I'm actually to this day, I still do like most of my own repairs and I actually know how to sew because I know a couple of different stitches. Cause you know, you learn that as a kid as part of that. So I've got like an all in some waxed thread so I could do basic repairs and things like that on leather. That is awesome. I will get into more of, of you and the company, but are there things that we'll just pick one specific and it sounds like that was such a big uh, learning experience for you, but is there something specific you can pull from that experience? I guess today. I lean on my childhood all the time, all the time. I think you learn how hard it is to make a living. Your parents can talk at you all they want, but unless you see it, you don't understand it. And I can remember my dad when I was little, you'd get gaps in your day and you'd be having lunch together. And, you know, you talk about life and things like that. And you're going to, you're getting life lessons from your dad, but you don't know you're getting life lessons because you're eight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He would always tell me, you really need to, you really need to work hard in school and you need to stay in school. And he would hold up his two hands and he would say, look, try not to work with these because you can only work so many hours in a day. You've got to be in a position. And what he was trying to tell me is you've got to be in a position where you can get more leverage out of your time because at the end of the day, I mean, he made a good living and still lives well and lived the American dream. But what he taught me as a really young child is if you use your brain, you get leverage on your hours, right? You can have a bigger impact. If you use your hands, it's an admirable thing, especially if you're an artist or something like that. But if you're doing manual labor, which is what that is, you can only work so many hours in a day, right? Your impact is fully proportional to that. And that stuck with me forever. That's super valuable. Obviously, it worked for, for you and your career. I wanted to take a step back. I usually ask my guests morning routines, how they start their day, or if there is a routine, if at all. But just given what you just told us, a little bit of a story about your father, I got to assume that you have some sort of routine in the morning, Pat. And, and what is that? I'm a creature of structure. Mm -hmm. And my personality, people tell me they don't see it in my personality when they interact with me, but I'm deep down a just hyper OCD, very organized. And so I get up around five every day. I have a triathlon coach that I've been working with for a long time. So he and I will talk about my work schedule and he'll fit in a training plan around that in the morning, depending on how early I have to start or whether I have to do two sessions, one in the morning and one at night or something like that. And so I typically will wake up like this morning, I did his online Zoom bike trainer class. You know, my bike is on my trainer, my living room. It's a, I guess, a COVID thing. Connect up via the laptop and there he is and a lot of folks that I know from all over the world. And he takes us through a, whatever workout he had planned. And then I did a 15 minute run off that workout, showered up into my, started my first meeting. Every day it looks kind of like that either. It's usually two sports so of the four things you do as a triathlete, you swim, you bike, you run, and you work on strength and mobility. So it's usually a combination of two of those in the mornings. When you're waking up at 5 a.m., are you going straight to the workout pad? Do you have a cup of coffee? Are you having breakfast before or after? How's that? Yeah, so this is all part of the whole triathlon thing. 
my nutritionist who works with my coach is keen on deciding whether I fuel before with a little something. I typically don't have breakfast, but he'll have me fuel potentially before or go in fasted into a workout. And, you know, there's science around when you do that and why. So I'll typically wake up and have two cups of coffee because I like coffee. I will usually try to get my overnight email to zero just because our European team is awake when we're asleep and that's typically what's coming in overnight. Mm -hmm. So I'll get that to zero and then start a workout. Sometimes you can't get it to zero and you have to walk away from it or you're not going to get your workout in. And so I will be an angry mess if I don't get my exercise in. So I do that. And then a lot of times the night before, if I know I'm going to be really tight, I literally lay everything out, like all my clothes for the next day. Sometimes I'm so tight. If I have to get the workout in, I'll wake up and then immediately slam a cup of coffee down, get everything on and you're on it. So sometimes you don't even have time to catch your breath and do your email if you got like 7 a.m. meetings and stuff like that. Right. Well, I mean, the the OCD is coming out already, Pat. So we have the email, we have the workout, we have the meals. It seems like it's structured, but it's structured on purpose. And I think I want to flop that into these triathlons. So it's no secret. I mean, that you're definitely into the, the triathlons. And tell me about that. I guess, where, where did it start? Was this when you were a child? Did this morph later in life? And, and what is it about the triathlons, Pat, that, that you love so much? You know, when you're my age and you were a kid, the era of club sports hadn't been born yet. So we all did recreational sports when we were a kid. And then when you got to high school, then you had more serious sports things. So I played baseball and basketball when I was a little kid. Basketball I'm horrible at, by the way, if you put me under the hoop and left me alone with a basketball (laughs) said, I need you to make 10 baskets if your life depended on it in an hour. I probably couldn't get it done. That was not my my forte. Baseball, I was okay at. So I played that when I was a little kid. And then I got to high school and played soccer and ran track and fell in love with running. I I liked running. Oddly, I was a goalkeeper in soccer, so I didn't run that much. But (laughs) I enjoyed that too a lot. I liked that sport a, a ton and got through it, got into college tried my hand at rowing for a very brief period of time, realized that I wasn't going to go to the Olympics or anything like that. So the time commitment probably wasn't worth the trade-off. So I stayed after I kind of abandoned the rowing thing in college. I stayed pretty fit in college working out. And then I wound up doing the startup thing and still kind of maintained running and working out through that right out of grad school. It was startups. When I started having kids, and you know my kids, Matthew, my oldest, was born in 1996. And from then on, I don't know why I let myself do this, but I fell off the wagon with respect to staying structured. When my daughter was born in 2000, December 8th of 2000, I never made a New Year's resolution, but that year I did. And I said, no more. And so I started just being way more structured again. And how I got into triathlon is one of my friends, Ken McKinnon, who lives in Los Gatos, a couple of his kids overlap in age with mine. So I used to see him all the time running with his Bob stroller and I would be running. <laughs> yeah. I've been there, done that. Yeah. And I see him at Blossom Hill Elementary School in Los Gatos all the time. So we started running together 
And I had another crew of runners as well that I would run with. And Ken was a triathlete in the 80s. So then I wound up cycling with him too. So now we were running and we were cycling. And he never brought up triathlon until 2007. Hmm. In 2007, he goes, so we should do an Ironman. And I'm like, I can handle the running and cycling thing, but I, I, I don't know how to swim competitively. I can swim not to drown, but I can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, don't worry, I'll teach you. And so I'm like, okay. So we signed up for Ironman Coeur Now, Ken was like the friend that says, oh, yeah, well, I'll teach you how to ski. And he takes you to the top of a black diamond for you. Yeah, friend. right. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't know any better? Sure. I didn't know any better. So we did a little tune-up race, a half iron, called the world's toughest half in Auburn, California. And they don't hold the it's, it's quite a challenging course. It was 107 degrees. That was uh, June of 2008, which was my first triathlon ever. And then about a month later, we did Ironman Coeur together and I was hooked. And that was, you said that was 2007. Yeah, 2007, I started races where it takes a while to build up to that. So 2008, I started racing. And the COVID year, last, this 2020, is the only racing season because everything was canceled that I haven't raced since then. When you are running, Pat, or I guess for that matter, cycling, are you, you have the, the headphones in, is it music? Are you listening to my podcast? I'm kidding there. Or are you completely trying to get away from work and that's, that's kind of like your brainless time, so to speak? It's a combination. First of all, the, my coaches, all the workouts are structured. So the question I ask myself, or that he's taught me to ask myself before every workout is what is the purpose of this workout. And you got to understand what you're trying to accomplish in a workout. What is it trying to do? Because it frames how you approach it, right? Because there's intervals and you're like, well, why the hell am I running at this pace uphill for this amount of time and then recovering this way? And if you don't have the purpose in your head, it's not as effective. So if you've got a lot of stuff going on, you've got to stay focused in the moment on what you're doing. So I'll typically put music on for those workouts because you can't focus on a podcast. Sometimes though, you're out for just an endurance run or an endurance ride. And then I will put on, I'm a big fan of all the Pushkin Industries podcast. Malcolm Gladwell does one on revisionist history. He's, He's one of the principals there. And then I just finished up Cautionary Tales and I'm, I'm going through right now, Michael Lewis's podcast series against the rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's was really great. And then I also listened to Russ Roberts. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He has great guests on. And so that's typically like how I fill my head with information on an endurance run. And then I find myself drifting. You think about work a lot on those things. You know, if you're on a four-hour endurance bike ride, then you have to like go rewind the podcast because you stopped paying attention to the podcast. So it's just... <laughs> right. So we mentioned working for your dad and now into the athletics of the triathlons and use that word a few times purpose. Do you, Pat, is it because of triathlons? Have you always been that way? Do you flop that into your day when you're going into work? Like what is the purpose of this task today? Or what is the purpose of the day in general? I don't use triathlon because I'm trying to be like some closet athlete. I know. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) I have a day job and a family and I'm passionate about triathlon, but why I do it is because it's a framework to think about everything else in life. Endurance sports are a great framework, in particular, the training for 
endurance sports because of the structure you have to stick to for a long, long time. And so if you do startups in early markets, which is what I like to do, I've only had four jobs and I'm 55 years old and I've never taken a break. So I've done early, I, I'm a long hauler, right? Right. Yep. <laughs> it takes a while to build a company up. So it's very much an endurance training mindset where the journey along the way is really the fun. The starting line of a triathlon is somewhat anticlimactic because you've been building up to a race or working up to it and trying to get in peak at the right time for something like that. But really, the race itself is really the reward for sticking to a program for a long period of time. And you learn if you want the best workout venue for grit, train for an endurance event because you will go through nutrition issues in a race. You'll go through mechanical issues. You'll go through physical stuff. It teaches you to be resilient. You have to be resilient in your training. You're always going to get injured at some point. You got to figure out how to work around that and stay structured. And so you build mental tools that help you stay focused. And so it's kind of a laboratory for me. I mean, it's how my head works. Not everyone's head works the same way. That's just how my head works. You use the word journey, which is a great transition. So I want to start with, I believe your journey started with a company called Fluent. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I went to the MIT Media Lab for grad school. I was in a research group that was nicknamed the Paperback Movies Group, and it was working on MPEG-1 encoders before. When you see the MP4 extension on an audio file, or you look at things like video files encoded, that was the before all of that. And this was in 1987 to 1989. So these were exotic computing problems back then. Right now, your iPhone can do it. But <laughs> yeah. then it took like a supercomputer. So we were working on compressing video to fit on what was the generation one compact discs back then. And they were about 1.5 megabits of throughput. So they were much slower than a DVD. And it was a very challenging problem to kind of compress video down to that level. And so the Media Lab program is a sponsored by industry laboratory at MIT and IBM and a couple of other companies were our sponsors. And what the lab would run is it would run showcases periodically of all the research. And I met a guy by the name of Dave Nelson, who is one of the founders of Apollo Computer, who is ironically probably about what my age now when I met him when I was all of 20 something. And he and I started chatting. He was interested in how video would change once it went digital how that can change not only computing, networking, because now you've got real bandwidth issues, real computing issues, but how it could be used in business as well as consumer applications. So he wanted to start a company around that. And I understood the technology, but I had no idea how to run a company or raise money. And so he put together a little team, me and a few other folks that I still keep in touch with. And we started out in his house one of his houses in he he owned a, all the homes on a cul-de-sac in see Framingham, Massachusetts. Hmm. We operated until we had venture first round funding. We operated out of his house and never looked back. That was you know one of the most fun periods in my life, and I was drawing no salary and working twenty four hours a day. 
And looking at, you know, you mentioned you've had only four jobs, quote unquote, but all of them have been in emerging new markets and all of them have either already had a successful exit or leading to it, which we'll get to. But the Fluent position, I believe you sold the company to Novell, if I have that right? Okay. Yeah, that got sold to uh, Novell and also Intel Ventures was an investor as well. And we were working on the video for Windows project because they had also bought a little company in Princeton at the time called DVI, Digital Video Interactive, if I remember. It's a long time ago. Yeah, right. And we worked on a software playback version. They had a hardware playback version and we figured out how to decode it in software on a PC. And they were working with Microsoft because the one of the premises for us, the breakthrough, is we wanted the... The encoding couldn't be done on a PC in real time without hardware boards, which we made mm-hmm. for what was then the emerging 486. <laughs> we'll write that down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Pentium wasn't out yet. And we were like, you know, oh, my God, if we could only have that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, now literally, I think my well, my iPhone's got like 200 times the compute power or more. And at any rate. The software playback was the key and the network delivery was the key. And we we wrote what was then called an NLM, a network loadable module. Network was everything in networking back then. And it was a way of organizing video on disk storage so you could get it off the disks efficiently and then transport it in a hierarchical fashion on the network so you could adapt to bandwidth congestion on the, on a network back then. And this was before you had gigabits and fiber optics and all that sort of stuff. And it worked out. And so Novell wanted to incorporate that another product line. So they bought the company. Fantastic. So Fluent to Novell, that took you to Polycom. And then what I believe, uh, technically on paper, your first chief executive officer job at TwoWire, correct? Well, so a good friend of mine who also lives in Los Gatos, whom you may know, Brian Hinman. So Brian was CEO at Polycom and I ran a big chunk of engineering there and we became very close friends. And when we, Polycom went public in 1996, we left in 1998 to start TwoWire and he was CEO and I ran engineering. He's a fantastic engineer, but we had a very close working relationship. He's probably the the best engineer I know personally. Hmm. Wow. That says a lot. In any discipline, he's just such a smart human being and just very intuitive. And so even though I ran engineering, Brian was heavily involved in engineering and I was pretty heavily involved in running the company as well. And then he decided somewhere around 2005 or so in that range that he wanted to go off and try his hand at being a VC. So he stayed on the board of Two Wire. I took over as CEO and then we wound up selling two wire to pace in October of 2010. So I was CEO for that five-year period. And Brian was still around. He was, he was on the board and we had a great board there. I'm still in touch with a lot of those folks. So then from there, we're just kind of going down the chronology here. This takes you to, to ChargePoint, which I've known you, I've known ChargePoint for a long time, but the famous statement overnight success took quite a while. And now September of this year, you announced you're going public through a, a reverse merger. What you can tell us about that would love for the audience to hear. First of all, two wire, I was there 12 and a half years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that fit your definition of overnight success. Yeah, too. It right. Just takes, mm-hmm. we were 
at the beginnings of where there was no broadband and we brought that through when broadband was a household utility like water a little over a decade. So ChargePoint, I fell in love with the company. I was in a transition job. I worked for the then CEO of Pace after they acquired our company, a guy by the name of Neil Gaiden. Neil's a very good guy. They're based in the UK. And I had a commitment to Pace to help them transition into the company. And a friend of mine that used to <laughs> they used to work for me, a guy by the name of Martin Lynch, whom you also might know. Mm-hmm. Martin knew a recruiter over at Schweikler Price that was looking for a CEO for this little company called ChargePoint. And this was at the tail end of 2010. So he put him in touch with me and I'm like, I maybe can help out as an advisor or something like that, but I, I've got a commitment. And he goes, well, look, just talk to the board there and some of the folks and see what you think. So it's on the ChargePoint blog. I wrote a blog post about this. I had a parking lot moment. I was sitting in the parking lot after my conversation with Mark Leshley of Row Ventures, who was on the board at uh, ChargePoint, very early investor. We were talking about the opportunity. When you punch the calculator on how big transportation is just in the United States in the world, you say, okay, there are 2 billion parking spaces, 2 billion. There's quarter million cars and light duty trucks. That's just consumer. That's not fleet and 2 billion parking spaces. And you're like, hmm. If it goes to a top-up model where you're charging, you have to electrify even a small percentage of those, not all candidates for electrification, but if you have to electrify a small percentage of those, you can make a huge company out of the new distributed fueling network that you're going to need because charging is born in the mobile app era and electricity is pervasively distributed. So you don't need to dispense it at like depots. You can dispense it while you're parked at home, at work around town, wherever you're doing. If you're going beyond your battery range, maybe you need to stop at a something that resembles a gas station or maybe is because electricity is a little easier to deal with in the parking lot of a place where you can do some shopping or get some food or what have you, which is what you're seeing now with electric vehicle charging for a long haul driving. Mm-hmm. So when you punch the calculator, you're like, wow, this thing is massive. And then wait a minute, I got all of Europe and then places around the world if you want to go even beyond that. This is one of these capital letter industries. I have this funny way of describing industries. Like there's lowercase industries and then there's capital letter industries. Capital letter ones are like food or water or transportation or power. They're in every, you know, they have their tentacles in everything. And I had made myself a promise that I was not going to do anything ever again in my career that was not super high impact. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with the company and then had to beg Neil Gaiden over at Pace to let me out of my transition job if I committed to be on call for those guys whenever they needed. And he was very much a gentleman about it. So he agreed to let me move over to ChargePoint. And so the first week of February or so, I started at ChargePoint and we closed the deal on like October 10th of 2010 and early February, I was at ChargePoint. You use the word promise. You made yourself a promise. Why was that? Was that for a specific reason, Pat, that you you made that promise or was it just sitting in the parking lot? I think when you've had a sufficient amount of success in your career where you have some discretion, like you can put your kids through college and you you can live in a house and take care of life. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be super wealthy. You just need to check some really 
pretty big boxes, but you need to check those boxes. Once you check those boxes, then you have to do a little soul searching about what does the rest of this journey called life mean to you? I said, okay, I want to build successful businesses because I enjoy doing that. I like businesses. I think they're interesting puzzles. They're fun to think about. They're good laboratories to express yourself in. But I don't want to make toys. I don't want to make things that people play with. I want to make things that affect the society in a positive way. And my real passion about ChargePoint, of course, it involves the environment, but it goes way beyond the environment. When we electrify transportation, we are going to drop the cost of living. Mm-hmm. And it's when you add autonomous drive to that, it goes even further. And the reason for that is transportation. The cost of transportation is built into everything you buy. And a car, when you own it, is only 4% utilized. So it is the worst use of your cash, the worst use of your cash. So getting into the sharing economy with transportation, ultimately, autonomous drive really enables that because it drops the cost structure. So you don't need to own one, but that's we'll evolve to it. It's a ways out. But working towards those goals, that's the real thing. You clean the planet up and you can sustainably scale it and it's super cost effective. So as the world starts to grapple with what it's going to do with 8 billion people and how it's going to level the experiences, the life opportunities for more and more people around the globe, this is one way of doing that. And I love it. I feel like we're working on something that actually will do a small part of the big equation that has to come together to fix a whole bunch of things that are kind of broken right now. Pat, you can just sense the passion when you're talking about it just as as a listener, which obviously is not only important for someone to work a normal job, let alone the, the CEO of the company, which I think is is just awesome to hear. We did kind of a, <laughs> now that I'm looking back, we kind of did a, this is your life, Pat. And in looking back, would you say, are there one or two like major tipping points in your career, Pat, that you could look back and say, I did this thing right. Or you said a parking lot moment before. Is there something specific that our audience can hear that you think is important? There are moments in my career, but the bigger moment was, and I I can't stress this enough, I think your formative years actually have the biggest impact on who you are and how you think about it. And my parents scraped together everything they could to send me to a very, very expensive private school in Princeton, New Jersey, which was run more like a college than a high school. So it taught you independence, but also it had a faculty to student ratio that was incredibly low. It was very favorable. I mean, I I had some classes that had two people in them, including me. And the biggest class I think I was ever in was maybe eight or nine. It's called the Hunt School of Princeton. I think the world of the program there. At any event, and here's my parents, right? They don't have a ton of cash, but no debt and earn their way through life and are very proud of it. They scrape everything together they could, plus some financial aid and send me there. And a English teacher, Janet Keeney, who used to be there, when it came time to apply for college, was like, you need to apply to Harvard. Hmm. And I'm like, look, Mrs. Keeney, that's her. She goes, I know it's a stretch. It's a stretch for everyone. You need to do this. So I did, and I got in. And what that taught me was you got to not be your own worst enemy. 
you got to give it a shot. By the way, I didn't get into every college that I applied to. I got waitlisted at Penn, right? So I got waitlisted at Penn and I got into Harvard and it's a crapshoot, right? Who they like and things like that, but you got to take your shot. And I remember that every day. So I never let myself defeat myself before I even give it a shot. Right. That's, I think, the first thing that you have to do, because when you're starting a company, it's it's not daunting. It's actually a ton of fun. But what's daunting to some people is there's nothing in place. You don't have desks. You don't have a building. You don't have people to do anything. You've got an idea and a spreadsheet and not a whole lot else. And maybe a core team of believers that want to do it with you. You don't even have investors yet. Normally, it involves quitting a perfectly good, high-paying job in Silicon Valley to go do something like that. But because of events in working in my parents' business and getting so much attention when I was in high school from so many really, really great teachers, some of those teachers I still remember to this day, and, and they were really fantastic. That's what got me over the hump to start businesses. It's not overconfidence. We're all mortal. Mm-hmm. What it is, is it's why not? It's why not, right? And then when you do it, well, you, then you just keep, you know what I, I liken starting companies to playing pinball. <laughs> and, I, and I'll tell you why. There's an element of randomness, the bumpers. And what you've got to do is you've got to use the flippers and your body English and not tilt the pinball machine. And you got to keep that ball moving and you can't let it go in the hole. Yep. And you are dealing with the bumpers all the time. And I'm dating myself here because. Well, I was going to say, yeah, the, the younger, the younger listeners, we're going to have to Google what a pinball machine is. Well, <laughs> to some degree, maybe it's got a little bit more strategy and purpose, but you're going to get torpedoes in the side right? <laughs> as you're going through the, the process of getting a company off the ground. And even once it's up and running and what you have to do is you cannot let something that is unexpected negative take you off your game. You can't. The minute you let it take you off your game, you're defeating yourself. And what I, my wife and I, whom you know, she'll go to me all the time. Isn't that like bad? Why are you not like fretting right now? And I'm like burning BTUs on worrying is not going to get me out of this. What I have to do is I have to focus on how to fix this right now. And I've learned over the years because of a lot of the things in my childhood, more so than my career, that how you handle things is if something bad happens, it's just a pinball bumper. Okay. So you got to just, you deal with it in the moment and you stay focused and eventually this too will pass. I tell myself that all the time, this too will pass. And it always has for me for some odd reason. And if I stumble and a company, God forbid, fails, you know, I don't want to see that happen because of the responsibility we have to a whole lot of families that work at ChargePoint and who knows in the future, I'll shake it off. I'll shake it off. You mentioned your love of baseball when you were a kid. I, I played baseball as a kid too. And a little bit of what you were saying, Pat, there's a famous quote by Babe Ruth, actually, that I've never forgot. And it's never let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game. And it's a little bit of what you're talking about is take that leap because at the end of the day, what's the worst that could really, really happen, right? You fail, but then you learn from those failures. 
Yeah, our CMO, I love our CMO, Colleen Jansen. She calls me Pat No Plan B Romano. And, <laughs> and she goes, you're so convicted on plan A. Do you ever make a contingency plan? It was a good question that she asked me once. And I'm like, look, if you hedge your position, you're not putting all your wood behind one arrowhead. And so I, what I'd rather do is make really, really educated decisions, constantly debate whether it's right so we can adjust as we're going, but I can't exercise two plans. Then you're diluting your, your main effort. So you kind of have to be all in. And I got my grandfather on my mom's side when I was a little kid and my dad used to you know, take you in the backyard and help you hit a baseball, right? I had the pitch back and all that sort of stuff that happened in my era, all these cool little baseball toys that you'd have in your backyard. And what my dad and my grandfather would both say when I was a little kid, just starting to play baseball, I'd overthink it and I'd hesitate. Is it a ball or is it a strike? Right. And I think every little kid goes through that, especially when they're not a naturally great athlete. So I don't have the intuition that a lot of great athletes have. And what they both told me was they're like, well, I can guarantee you that if you hesitate, it's a strike. <laughs> yeah. So you've got to commit. You've got to commit. You're either swinging or you're looking. And don't look too often because you got to go after some that are on the edge of the strike zone because as you get older, you're going to be up against some pitchers that know how to move the ball around. And you've got to basically learn how to make contact, not necessarily when it's dead in the strike zone. You've got to be able to make solid contact. And the only way to do that is to commit as that ball is leaving that pitcher's hand. And companies work exactly the same way. you got to be committed. And then where that pitch is coming at you is not in the strike zone. You have to adjust mid swing. It's like any sport, baseball, triathlon, you're going to get hit with stuff, but you got to go. You got to no, go. I love it. I love, I mean, thanks for sharing that, Pat. So I like to end the show on kind of some fun rapid fire questions, if you don't mind. So my first one is, I just mentioned a quote by Babe Ruth. Is there, are there any quotes, Pat, that stick with you that, that you like? There are a ton. There's a recent one that came out of one of the podcasts I listened to. Okay. Maybe you bring this up because I used it the other day. It was an English economist, Maynard Keynes, um, most part of him. And it was part of their Cautionary Tales podcast series. And they were going through some set of events where they, these guys, these early economists were trying to play the stock market. And there's a bunch of quotes that are attributed to Keynes. One of the most famous ones, I think, is when they asked him what he had regrets in life. And I'm not going to get this exactly right. It was something to the order of, I regret that I haven't drunk more fine champagne. <laughs> but the quote that they talk about that's not as well attributed to him is he was asked a question regarding changing his mind on decisions. And what he said is, I make decisions based on the information that I have. And if the information changes, I'll reconsider my decision or something to that effect. I'm not quoting it exactly, but it's effectively that. I was on a run at the time and I'm like, oh my God, that's it right there. That's the characteristic right there. You're constantly saying, do I have new information? So you don't fall in love with your decision you fall in love with the process of making a decision and you're like, yeah, I didn't have complete information. So I, I made the decision before it's not right now. So I'm changing it. Yeah. Wow, that's great. I have like no ego around it. Yeah. That's a good one. Next question. If you could choose a completely different profession, what would it be and why? Oh, that's so easy. I would have gone into medicine. Really? 
I almost did. I really, really enjoyed biosciences when I was in high school. I enjoyed chemistry a lot. <laughs> in fact, I was kind of a chemistry geek when it came down to, and I fell in love with computers in high school because later in my high school career, they bought TRS-80s, you know, the Radio Shack TRS-80, and I learned how to program that. I fell in love with it, so I went in that direction, but I would have gone into medicine for sure. And sometimes I wonder if I should have. Wow. Well, I mean, it, it speaks to a little bit of your desire to make an impact on life or people or a positive impact, and obviously medicine would. That's, that's a great answer. Okay, next question. It, rumor has it you were in two bands in high school, and you can play sheet music from almost any instrument. Is that true? Not almost any. So I'm still very close friends with these guys. A band in high school. Mm -hmm. I got introduced by my brother's guitar teacher. Introduced me to a bunch of other kids in New Jersey in the local area that wanted to do this. And one of the things we did at most practices towards the end, and we practiced like three days a week. I mean, we practice like crazy, <laughs> is we'd get up and switch instruments. Wow. We would just get up and switch. And we would just always be intellectually curious about, well, what's bass like or what's guitar like or what's whatever. And I was just listening to one of those podcasts and they were talking about Brian Eno, who's he's just such a famous composer. Brian Eno did that to a group that couldn't find its groove on a song and he just had them like switch. And I didn't realize, of course you don't realize at the time you were a kid and you just think it's yeah, fun. Sure. <laughs> it, it musical agility and that agility helps you get out of your rut in your own instrument. So I am not very good at a whole bunch of instruments. <laughs> I generally know where everything is on the guitar, on the bass kind of keep a beat on the drums, but not well. Don't ask me to sing. Okay. Well, <laughs> noted. We'll do that. All right. Last one. I know you own two restaurants, but this question is your last meal. It's a little bit morbid, but you're sitting down. This is your last meal. What is on that plate or plates and frankly, glass, if you want to include that as well? Okay. So I grew up in a very traditional Italian family. Mm -hmm. I can't eat this way, even though I own an Italian restaurant, one of the two restaurants is an Italian restaurant and I eat there, but I'm very judicious about how much, because I really like it and it's not compatible with my athletic pursuits, <laughs> but I would go back to my roots and just have a wonderful Southern Italian meal. And it probably would be, be a lot of courses. There would be a lot of courses and what's in the glass. I am an avid wine. I love wine. I love it for the project and the puzzle that it is in the glass. I think it's wonderful because think about very few ingredients and how many things you can do with it. So yeah, I'd go through probably, I would pair some of my favorite wines with a long list of courses. It'd be Southern Italian. There would definitely be some pasta in there for sure. Probably some of my childhood favorites as well. Cause Hey, you know, I wouldn't be worried about the next day's weight gain. <laughs> is there is there a specific bottle right now that you're a big fan of wine? A friend of mine, one of the nice things about restaurants is our wine director and general manager at the restaurants, Jose Garcia. He's great. So he introduced me to a guy by the name of Lars Conrad, who's over at Cordoval 
And I actually ride with Lars. He introduced me because Lars needed a triathlon training partner. And Lars is like 27 years old. So I'm counting my days before I get shredded on <laughs> a 27-year-old Alsatian, right? So he's half German, his mother's yeah. German, right? So imagine that. But Lars actually made me an appointment at a winery up in um, Napa recently called Continuum. It's actually after the Mondavi family sold the Mondavi business, they actually started Continuum. I was super impressed with their stuff. Super impressed. It's pricey. So I am careful about how much I buy, but I have some of that. And then the other thing, one of my favorites, if I go back to my kind of roots. So basically I'm a huge Brunello fan. Oh, okay. And with Italian wines, the problem is I might be a fan of a particular winery this year and next year it might not be as good because a bit of a variance there year to year. There's a bit of a crapshoot with the weather and the winemaking, but I'm a huge Brunello fan. Oh, great. Well, thank, thanks for sharing, Pat. This has been so much fun and I can say inspiring to say the least on your, your story, Pat, and your journey to where you are and frankly, where you're going. ChargePoint is definitely on Google searches everywhere, every day nowadays. So so good luck with that, Pat. And then is there anything for the audience you want to leave with? You know, I think this has been a great conversation. And I'm, I think your audience is probably mostly folks, my guess is Silicon Valley, right? In the general area. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure given your following that it'll go further, but we should be very thankful of the place that we live and the interesting people we run into on a daily basis. I mean, I met you through Collier's, but also see you at Yoga Source. And right. what's amazing is when you run into people in Silicon Valley, you're one degree of separation away from some really interesting folks. And I think owning the restaurants is, has exposed me to more and more folks in the community. And I'm I just think everyone needs to really just get inside some of their neighbors' experiences and heads because it's amazing how much wealth we have of experience. Forget about the wealth of experience that we have right here in the Valley. It's really, really pretty amazing. Great way to end on, Pat. Thank you again for your time and obviously good luck with everything going on at ChargePoint. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was, it was great to talk to you. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Pat Romano. This show is brought to you by absolutely no one. I do not have a sponsor signed up yet, but for the sponsors that have sent in inquiries, thank you so much. They're all under consideration right now and looking forward to others if you are interested. You can find me at my website, which is ramizay.com, R-O-M-Y-Z-E-I-D.com. And I hope you all have a great day.